On October 22nd of last year, Senator Murray and Governor Inslee of Washington State released a statement saying they were initiating a joint state-federal process to look at whether the services provided by the Lower Snake River Dams can be replaced. They planned on initiating a process where they would interview stakeholders to get their perspectives and then look at existing studies to determine the answer. The initial Murray Inslee report was released on June 9th, and they are accepting comments through July 11th. The final report is scheduled for release the summer of 2022. It was July 31st, but it has now been delayed. Shortly thereafter, Senator Murray and Governor Inslee are slated to make a recommendation of what to do with the dams. There is a lot to be concerned about in this process and Northwest River Partners has been very engaged, uh, including the fact in terms of concerns that Governor Inslee made a public pre-announcement about the process jointly with Vice Chair Shannon Wheeler of the Nez Perce Tribe at a Washington Conservation Voters event. We greatly respect Vice Chair Wheeler and the Nez Perce Tribe, but the fact is that they are leading advocates for removing the Lower Snake River dams. So I'm sure that they would feel uneasy if Governor Inslee had announced the process jointly with Northwest River Partners. Additionally, the process, questioned, uh, the process question was phrased as something that's not really a question at all. It said, can the services provided by the Lower Snake River dams be replaced? Well, as you know, you can't really answer that in a vacuum. Anything potentially can be done. It doesn't necessarily mean it's good public policy. So when the report, uh, the draft report came out on June 9th, it wasn't a huge shock to see that yes, they determined it can be done. But um, it really does, it looks at this in a vacuum instead of what it will take to achieve the region's carbon-free goals uh, by 2045 and what the loss of the dams might mean to that achievement. And for that reason, we're really concerned. Um, we are encouraging all of our members to reach out to Governor Inslee and especially to Senator Murray and her team to engage on this issue. And we have sent out an email and partnered with the Public Power Council on, um, on their own uh, as we try to engage customers and members to really get involved in this moment that could make the difference for the future of the Lower Snake River dams and the region's clean, affordable energy future. We started in hard times to bring us all in into the Welcome to Public Power Underground. You got to read the script. Do you have the script up, Kurt? No. Oh, man. I got oh, I got so much scripted for you, Kurt. Welcome to Public Power Underground on the Public Power Department's premier infotainment program. Oh, I'm so sorry. Here, just one second. I'm going to roll with it. We're going to roll with it. This is all, we're going to leave this all in. Okay. Welcome to Public Power Underground, the Power Department's premier infotainment program that covers electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a Power Department perspective. Imagine this is in Kurt's voice because Kurt's a celebrity guest host. Um, and then, Kurt, do you have it up now? Because now you introduce yourself. Oh, um, I know who I am, so I don't need it. Uh, my name is Kurt Miller. Yes, you do. The... Yes, you do. You can need the official title of the Anadromous Championship belt. I'll do it for you. Ready, Kurt? Okay. Yes. Kurt Miller is an original contributor to the underground. Really, the the old school original. Like, I think you were the first guest. Yeah, I was the first. I think you were the first guest. Uh, the stir he is the Sturgeon Weight Anadromous Champion. You can see the belt if you're on YouTube. She's, oh, yeah. He's got it strung over his phone. It's bestowed on the best friend of the underground because he keeps coming back. He is also the executive director of Northwest River Partners and this week's celebrity guest host. Kurt, say your name in your own voice. I'm Kurt, Kurt Miller. Northwest River Partners and yes, Anadromous okay. Belt Champion. That's right. 
So now you got to get the script up while Dan introduces himself. Okay, I'll go. To, uh, I'll mute and go to the script. And fortunately, I also remember who I am. Uh, I'm Dan Catchpole, contributing editor of Clearing Up, co-host of Nudist Data's Energy West podcast, and this week's podcast ambassador from News Data. And this is Casey Mahaffey. I cover fish issues for Clearing Up, and I'm the editor of News Data's Northwest Fish Letter. And I'm uh, the creative director of Public Power Underground, the lead writer of the scripts that Kurt has decided to ignore. Uh, the manager of Klatskin IP News Power Department and today's producer for the episode. So this is all my fault when it doesn't go according to plan. Kurt, do you have the script up? This is season four. Oh, we got to do some banter in between. We got to oh, do some I'm sorry, Kurt I did the not banter. Prepare. Part. Kurt's been so busy that he didn't do any any sort actually, of prep for this. Actually, that is true. I do have a really good excuse uh, with the Murray Lee process and the report that's going out. Um, I have, uh, you can see my hair has been on fire. As a matter of fact, there is no hair left. So it has been a really busy time. Uh, and I, but I do love Public Power Underground. So I am very sorry for having shirked the preparation responsibilities. No, that it's, uh, it's, you are, you could, you could never betray us because you're so ingrained in our culture at Public Power Underground. You gave us a chance when few else were. <laughs> it's awesome. Casey, welcome back. You were also one of the earliest contributors. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, it was fun. I think we talked about invasive muscles or something. Or that's no, right. What are they? The zebra muscles. <laughs> zebra muscles. Yeah. That's right. So, and Dan, alive. welcome back. Um, yeah, Dr drain and dry, and um, I forget the other one, but don't take you your boat out without checking. <laughs> Absolutely not. Seriously. Take your boat out. Yep. Dan, you're out early, so we got to get this done in record time, don't we? Yep. Yeah. I, uh, my ride for my kids from camp fell through. So I got to. So we got to let you, we, it, yeah. it, even if you got to drop us to get out of here, save your kids, kids first, family first. It's the mantra <laughs> that we're going to start now. Uh, Kurt, we're ready for you. Now, do you got the script up? Okay. Yes. The, I, I just, I just missed the banter part. That's all. Um, okay. okay. This is season four, episode 15 on today's recording. And we discussed the Murray Inslee draft report, Australia's electric market getting suspended natural gas price slumped after a fire, transfer of management of a fish, a fish hatchery to the Nez Perce tribe, and falconry at the Dalles Dam. We also debrief on the market indicators with Aaron reports and try to make it all infotaining with friendly conversation in between. Before we get started, Dan is going to read a quick word from our presenting sponsor. Thanks, Kurt. The presenting sponsor of Public Power Underground is the Energy Authority. The Energy Authority is a nonprofit energy portfolio management company owned by public power entities like us. TEA's mission is to help clients maximize the value of their assets and meet their power supply goals. TEA does this by providing expertise in energy trading, advanced analytics, renewable solutions, and a whole lot more. Over 60 public power utilities have partnered with TEA to tackle their energy future. So if you are looking for an energy authority to partner with and navigating uncertain future of the uncertain future of our industry, visit TEAINC.org to learn more. That's TEAINC.org. The Energy Authority. They're as underground as it gets. I'm really glad that you're the one who read that, Dan, because I would have said T Inc. So well done. Um, okay, so thanks, Dan. We're starting this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, 
Aaron reports. Take it away, Paul. This is Aaron Reports with Paul Reporting, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest market indicators for June 28th, 2022. I'm Paul Dockery, and I've got your market update for the week. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery today is at 75.50 with natural gas at 455 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of 43.63 and a heat rate of 16,600. Spot power in Southern California is at 77.57 and Northern California 80.83 and the Southwest at 80.25. July power at mid-sea is down $7.05 from a week ago to $58.95, and Sumas gas is at $5.64, translating to a heat rate of 10500 July power at Palo Verde is down $26.20 from a week ago to $134.45 per MMBTU. Or per megawatt hour, per MMBTU. That's whoa. just silly. Holy cow. <laughs> uh, August power at mid-sea is trading down $10 per megawatt hour from a week ago to $130 with Sumas gas at $6.24, translating to a heat rate of 20,800 BTU per kilowatt hour. At Palo Verde, August power is at $195.80 per megawatt hour, down $12.80 from a week ago. In fish counts, we got fish people on today. We're doing fish counts. 40,584 sockeye salmon were counted at Bonneville yesterday, June 26, bringing the year-to-date total to 239,575. October through September flows of the Dallas for water year 2022 are currently forecast to be 107% of normal and April through September is at 111%. Outflow at the Dallas peak from it last week occurred on June 21st at 8 a.m. at 425.5 KCFS. Day ending elevation in Grand Coulee yesterday was 1,285 feet, meeting its target for 4th of July festivities at Lake Roosevelt. And peak outflow this past week was at 269.9 KCFS on June 27th. Spending a beat at Bonneville's Balancing Authority peak load this past week was at 8,303 on June 27th at 5.40 p.m. During load's peak, hydro generation was at 14,367. Wind gen was 281. Conventional units were 787. And nuclear was 1,123, all units in megawatts. And so for March, April, May period sits at negative 1.1 Oceano Nino index. The multivariate ENSO index for April to May is negative 1.68. And the SST consolidated Nino forecast indicates that La Nina is favored to continue through the Northern Hemisphere summer with slightly increased probabilities through the Northern Hemisphere fall and early winter 2022. That's a 58 to 59% chance you can find those indicators on uh, the NOAA's website. This week in the NOAA climate forecast, just stay right there and go to the climate forecast. The six to 10 day outlook has temps below normal and precipitation above normal for the region. 30 day outlook issued June 16th shows equal chances for above or below normal uh, temperature and precipitation for the region, while the 90 day seasonal outlooks issued on June 16th shows a likelihood of above of normal temperatures and below normal precipitation for the region. Special thanks to Answer G for letting us use their dashboards. That's all we've got for this update. Thanks for the report, Paul. Great job out there. Bam, we did it. Anything, anything you like in there that want to talk more about? 
it, we're going to talk more about the crash in that. I mean, it's not really a crash. It's still like six bucks, but the decrease in natural gas prices, we got a story about that. We also got a bunch of stories about fish. Anything else interesting in there? Just crickets. I wish I had a crickets one. No, I mean, Kurt didn't even prepare for this episode, so he doesn't have anything to add. And I'm Dan, always prepared. No, you know, you are um, always my, prepared my thought, to talk about everything. My thought on that, um, you know, I used to be an energy trader, and uh, but I haven't, you know, in this role, that's that's not what I do. I don't follow energy prices every day or every month. But it is interesting to see with what a good water year, a water supply year we're having, that July was still able to maintain a 10,000 heat rate at mid-Columbia. Um, yeah. So I thought, I thought that was pretty interesting, although obviously there was a pretty big drop. Um, in, you know, um, I think you said like a six or $7 drop from the last time you reported. But still, that's like, that's a big number considering how much water is going through the system. So um, it does imply tightness for kind of the rest of the West. Great insights, Kurt. You're, you just, you just, that's why you're so good at this. That's why you're in an Adramus championship. You just go put your trader hat on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dust that sucker off and let's yep, get going. We're here for it. Anything you wanted to add, Casey? Um, I'm, I find the info stuff interesting. I was hearing um, that if we go into another winter of um, lending, it'll be a triple dipper, which we hardly ever see. So that's kind of cool. Third, third winter. The winters is what we care about because that's when you get more, um, you know, hot, colder weather and and wetter. Um, although I did hear a, um, a webinar on on drought that said um, they think that the Northwest, the you know the wet weather we've been having is is La Nina influence too. So yeah. And, and is it's also good now is let me test this your fish people ocean conditions impact a fish a great deal does la nina help the fish conditions is it colder ocean conditions i actually don't know mm, i probably should the la nina and el nino is determined in the equator so the uh, ocean condition it's the temperature at the equator so that doesn't mm directly relate to it but um a combination of la nina and good ocean conditions is really good for fish so um and so that's what we're seeing right now because they had a really good year um last year and going into the going into the um summer <clears throat> so yeah the fish counts sounded great did they sound great to anybody else i'm not an angler i don't no, that's, know that's amazing they are amazing fish counts and and that is really great because there have been some really dire predictions for the near term. Um, you know, I know one group out there have been saying that um, salmon might go extinct in five years, looking, you know, at the, like the previous five years of data, not including last year, which was up a little bit. Um, and that doesn't mean that salmon are doing great or are in the shape that we would like them to be, but it certainly is a welcome reprieve from those kind of more dire predictions. And, um, and so hopefully we'll continue to see those good trends. And yeah, both from a La Nina perspective and a um, hydro perspective, um, or both from a fish perspective and a hydro perspective, it is exciting to see the La Nina because it, it does, you know, given the dire drought that uh, the Southwest US has seen, it, it's a really positive sign in general for Northwest hydro conditions. Now, um, it is also a little bit depressing for those of us who have lived through <laughs> This, um, this second quarter, and as people have been calling it, January. But, uh, but that being said, um, I feel like I'm always hedged as a hydropower advocate, because if it's raining, that's good for hydropower. And if it's dry, it's good for my recreational life. <laughs> 
So with the better numbers, uh, it, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I've seen the stories that Casey has written, you know, uh, biologists predicting that there were, we've reached a tipping point in terms of salmon populations and um, there might not be any coming back. So with the better fish number, fish count numbers, uh, how long does it take until we'll see, you know, with the numbers last year and, and the hopefully better numbers go, continuing this year, uh, how long will it be until we see how that affects the projections of the salmon population? Oh, I mean, wouldn't we love to be able to answer that? <laughs> well, I, I just mean like, how long does it take for biologists to take this, these real world, real world fish counts and put them into their models and say, well, it looks like, we're on an upward trend or no, this is just a bump, but then we're gonna go back down or what have you. Well, Noah is saying that basically that um, they predicted this bump this year um, because of the great ocean conditions when fish were going in. We had a really, we had the worst ocean conditions ever in 2015, 2016, 2017. And that's what led to all of this like extinction worry. Um, but now it's flipping around. And um, so some are still worried that, you know, climate change is driving some huge um, problems in the ocean. And, um, and some people say that means we need to do everything, including take out dams to, um, to protect them when they're in the fresh water. So your turn, Kurt. Yeah, no, I think you said it all really well. I mean, I, um, you know, there's always been variability from year to year. Uh, it does look like Ocean conditions probably are the, the primary driver. Um, and um, the, the question is, like um, a couple of years ago, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, declared the, like basically the previous 50 years is a period of unabated ocean warming. And, um, and the NOAA Fisheries last year released a study that said if the ocean continues to increase temperature at its current rate, the Chinook salmon populations could be extinct by 2060, so within 40 years. Um, and so that wasn't as dire as some of the some of the forecasts we had seen more recently from, from some groups, but it was really eye-opening. And I think the, the question is, yeah, we've had a couple good years and that's great, but what is going to be the longer term trend in the ocean? I think that's that is the real big issue is are, are these a couple good years, but on a trajectory of warming that is going to be bad for salmon overall, or could there be a, a flip in, in long-term ocean conditions? So that's that's the thing we won't know. That's the thing we can't predict. And uh, I think it's a question you're asking. And, and Casey's right, we would love to know that, but, but you know, the forecasts are not promising long-term for the ocean. Up next, or next up, is our weekly walkthrough electric utility and electric utility adjacent news in a segment that we like to call Public Power Desktop. Sarah, give us the typewriter. I'm getting there. Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, give us the typewriter. I guess, yes, Sarah's not here, sorry. Take it away, Dan. All right. Take it away, Dan. Uh, draft report developed by, or for Washington Governor Jay Inslee and Senator Patty Murray. Uh, dropped June 9th, and it's looking at the impacts of breaching the four lower Snake River dams, the impacts on energy, ecosystem health, agriculture, navigation, transportation, tourism, and recreation, and the region's economy. So just a few items that it's looking at. According to the report, breaching the four lower Snake River dams would improve passage for salmon, steelhead, and lamprey, and it offers the best hope for removing 
the four Snake River salmonoid uh, species from the Endangered Species Act list. But breaching the dams would cost between an estimated $10.3 billion and $27.2 billion. It would require congressional approval and, of course, take years of planning, collaboration, and engagement. The report acknowledges that uh, the need to have replacement resources in place prior to breaching, and it states, quote, if the Lower Snake River dams were to be breached, the replacement portfolio needs uh, the replacement portfolio needs to be in place and demonstrating that it's producing energy and providing services to the grid before the dams were breached. If the replacement portfolio is not in place, the Pacific Northwest region would experience increased challenges. These include the reduction in peaking capacity, risk of congested transmission lines, particularly near the Tri-Cities, increased power rates, and potential increases in carbon emissions due to increased emitting generation to compensate for the loss in capacity, end quote. The resource replacement has many challenges identified in the report, including who will pay to replace the energy infrastructure and who will determine the replacement portfolio. The report is open for comment until July 11th at 5 p.m. Pacific time. You can find a link to the report in the show notes, and more coverage and clearing up uh, from Casey Mahaffey. Kurt, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? So, um, you know, we obviously at Northwest River Partners as hydropower advocates, we were really interested in what the draft report would say. Um, uh, we appreciated that we had the opportunity um, after we, we requested it to sit down with the consultants who were putting together the draft report. Uh, and, I, and I say, though, that we were disappointed that I, I don't think that what we had to say was reflected in the report. The issue is when you read the report, basically, at every turn, the even though the kind of the conclusions are like really big numbers, but as, as you read through the report, it kind of tries to diminish the role of the Lower Snake River dams throughout the report. Uh, for instance, just kind of at random when they're talking about the carbon-free uh, hydropower that the Lower Snake River dams provide, then they throw in kind of a random methane number that they attribute to the dams without showing how they got to that number or anything. They just cite a paper that um, talked about how one might calculate it, for example. So they, they you know, say, oh yeah, hydropower is methane, but then they don't talk about the life cycle, the carbon life cycle footprint of any of the replacement resources that might be used to replace it. Another, another example of that is that they basically say, oh, well, climate change is going to restrict the dams, um, but that's really debatable. Uh, you know, University of Washington Climate Impacts Group has essentially said, we may get more precipitation long-term under climate change scenarios, although they do predict that um, we'll have an earlier runoff, that more of that precipitation will fall as rain in the winter than as snow, and that there will be you know, um, lower stream flows in the summer. We get that, but that is also a super long-term forecast. And, and at, the, at the heart of it, it's still predicting that we'll get about normal precipitation on average, you know, over the course of time. So, you know, there are just things baked in there that seem to try to take these digs at hydropower. Another, another example of that is uh, they say that uh, litigation and other things are going to uh, further limit the availability of the Lower Snake River dams. And that's certainly not a science-based statement. It is a, a statement of opinion and it's you know pretty speculative. So I think there's a lot of things in there that are troubling. And then if you look at the other side of the ledger, when they talk about salmon, 
Um, they do not question any of the statements that were made by groups that want to see the dams removed. So they basically say that, you know, salmon are, you know, going extinct and that breaching the dams will bring them back in robust numbers. And, you know, as, as you know, there's a lot of debate about whether exactly how beneficial breaching those dams would be in recovering salmon populations, but they don't make any caveats in those statements. They don't talk about the discrepancies in the science. Um, and they just assume that if the dams are removed, that salmon come back in really robust numbers. So I think, you know, I, I, I can't say it any other way except to say the report feels really biased kind of against the hydropower system, even though it calls out these really big costs. And, um, and so I think that's a really big problem. And then from a utility perspective, for all of our utility members out there that are trying to get to a zero carbon grid, um, the report doesn't do what I think would be required analysis to really look at what it takes to get to a zero carbon grid, both with the dams in place and without the dams. And that's the only way that you can know what the effect of removing the dams would be, right? Is if you, you have to run the models with them and without them. Um, so our uh, organization did commission such a study. We're going to be releasing it. Uh, what's today? Today is the 28th. We'll be releasing it tomorrow on the 29th uh, publicly and briefing uh, the Marie Inslee consultants on it as well and, and making it available to everyone to see. But it is the numbers are really shocking about the impact of losing the lower Snake River dams, not just financially, but in terms of what it means to uh, the required build out and the carbon and everything else. So we, so. if you get it to me, we can probably include it in the show notes along with the Murray Inslee oh, yeah. report. We can get it okay. out there. Uh, this will do that. It'll probably be, it'll probably be available by the time this is published. The That's first, okay. the first thing, uh, the first time you came on here, the one of the, I think greatest insights, not greatest, but I'll frame it that way anyway. One of the greatest <laughs> insights you provided during that conversation was that we actually need more nuance around exactly these resources, that um, what we need to make sure is that we need to be empathetic to the shared mission of recovering the salmon, but also understand the nuance related to um, what the value pr provided by these and the effect of removing them and making sure we have that nuanced conversation about ocean conditions and that that link. So um, I want to say I really appreciate your seat at this table because I do think you bring empathy and you do try to be honest in, in your analysis and the way you present the topic. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, th thank you. I really appreciate that, Paul. I mean, and that's maybe that's my criticism of this report is it really lacks nuance. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, we all, I think everyone agrees who's, you know, from the Northwest and has lived here, that salmon are sacred, that we should be helping salmon. But, you know, uh, when the nuance is lost, then you just, you know, kind of get to, well, we got to get rid of the dams, you know, and I, and I think that, I think the, the issue is much bigger than that and much more complex. And so uh, I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Casey, I, I, you know, Kurt uh, has, has a position. He is an advocate and we love, uh, we love that you, where you bear that with nuance and with empathy, Kurt, uh, that's a, a very valuable in a, in an advocate, but Casey, you've heard from other folks uh, that think of this differently. You are an independent journalist. Any, any other nuance or thoughts you want to add to the conversation? Um, well, I think um, some of the things that I took away from it is um, one of the biggest significant aspects of it is that um, it says congressional authorization will be required. And so um, that's a big lift. I mean, that's a heavy lift, especially now. Um, I guess what are you talking could, about? Congress is so easy. Sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. 
Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I expect they'll try to put it in the Water Resources Development Act, which is basically the annual funding for um, for um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, um, and they and Congress does pass something every year on that. So. Um, but it's not always an easy, you know, it's, it's not going to be an easy thing if they put um, Snake River Dam removal money in there or, or directive to, um, to Army Corps to take them out or breach them. So um, I think that's, um, that's a big theme that Murray and Inslee put that in there and, and didn't just leave the issue aside, I guess. I mean, they're saying it's necessary. So um that is a big thing i think um the other think, the other big thing to kind of follow on that casey not to cut you off but i did also note that they they comment their replacement portfolio is necessary before you do this too right not only is it going to take congressional action but then you need to have a con uh, replacement portfolio in place and one of the things i think a lot about being concerned about climate change and the impact on the oceans and our environment is is that replacement that the time frame for climate change and the replacement of those resources we need additional carbon free resources within the northwest to replace other carbon emitting resources and you do have this concern about resource development and resource development time frame and can you do it twice as fast you know because you're both mm -hmm. replacing the lower snake dams and carbon emitting resources um and and like that you know, the nuanced conversation that comes from the constraints on resource development um, and the availability of additional carbon free resources and, and that, that timing around replacing carbon emitting versus carbon free resources. Well, and I mean, that's one thing that jumped out to me in this report was because they don't, it's not just saying we need to have a plan, but that it's steel in the ground producing energy, which is going to take I mean, a build out like that. I mean, especially with supply chain constraints now, which, and who knows when those will abate, but then also just the scale to which the West, it plans to build out renewables just in general, just to yeah. transition, like you were saying. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, how long will this take? And by the time you finish that and prove that this replacement portfolio is functional, would there be any salmon left? <laughs> I mean, yeah. like, I honestly, mean, the all, time I mean, frame that we're talking about, it seems like it's almost, it might be too late, even if yeah. you went ahead with this. And I'm not advocating for one way or the other. Um, but, but no, I mean, you could easily be, on, be beyond the 2060 time frame that NOAA Fisheries has said that the ocean w could end, you know, most Chinook salmon populations in the, in the you know, along the Pacific coast. So absolutely, yeah. it's a it's a very valid question. Yeah, and not to lose the empathy, like that's not something we want. Like we want to preserve no, these no. fish, and we, you know, if uh, the the price tag for preserving fish is hard to compare it against because it's comparing against the 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 existence of a species, and so the cost it was hard, but it's also a timing of what is the effective approach to preserving. It, it, like any any species that well almost any species you lose we have to uh, you know uh be cognizant of the fact that these are a i don't know what the phrase is but i mean they're it's not just this one species goes if it goes uh but like the orca population would collapse and i mean casey you know better than i how they, they fit into these various fish fit into the ecosystem but they they don't exist in a vacuum there will be their disappearance will have dramatic effects on 
the ecosystems of our rivers in the Northwest. Casey, do you have one thing before we move to the next story? I was going to follow on what Dan just said about um, American Indians and the importance to them. And I think that's the other thing that this report kind of brought, uh, brought to forefront is that um, they are the driving force behind this. I think they're um, in May 2021, the 57 tribes of the affiliated tribes of the Northwest Indians passed a resolution supporting dam removal. And that's the first time they've done that. And so I think that's the driving political force too behind the Inslee Murray report and behind what's to follow. I think everything that everyone said is right. I do think what gets, what does get lost in this is whether hydropower is kind of friend or foe. And I think that that's, I think that's a really big issue regarding the salmon, right? Is, you know, if climate change is the greatest threat to not just the snake river salmon, but to all the salmon, you know, stepping back in our decarbonization efforts is not the right move for salmon and maybe in not for orcas as well. Uh, my good friend, uh, Paul coined a, a phrase and I don't, I never get it right, but you know, the question is, do the salmon need the dams? And, and it sounds, you know, it sounds ironic, but there is a there is a real issue here, and I think that's why the conversation has to be nuanced, and um, and I think that's why we have to look at these issues really carefully. So with that, I am going to take my next cue, which is, um, okay, Paul, we're ready for the typewriter. Casey's got the next story. Australia's main wholesale electricity market, the Australian energy market or operator or AMO suspended the entire national electricity market for the first time in its history on Wednesday, June 15th. According to their press release, AMO took the step because it was impossible to continue operating the spot market while ensuring a secure and reliable supply of electricity for consumers in accordance with their national electricity rules. This is significant for electric market electric market enthusiasts like us, because AMO is an energy only market with the highest price cap in the world at 15,100 Australian dollars per megawatt hours, which is approximately 10,400 US dollars per megawatt hour. Plus it's also a region with deep penetration of renewable intermittent and battery resources. Wholesale prices surged leading up to the suspension due to two main factors. According to an article published by The Conversation, written by Joel Gilmore and Tim Nelson, the two factors, high coal and gas prices, driven by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and roughly 25% of coal power stations being out of action. The coal power stations are unavailable because of maintenance, as well as the sudden exit of 3,000 megawatts of power due to unplanned outages. The actions inform shortfalls in energy-only markets, in deep decarbonization, and falls into the themes professors Jacob Mays and Frank Wolak have been studying. Professor Mays and Professor Wolak, the, the interviews I've done for Public Power Underground on electric market enthusiasm, I think this is incredibly informative to the Northwest as it considers the evolution into a market and the way we formulate and think about resource adequacy in long-term markets. Um, very happy that the Western Power Pool is actually considering this as a core tenant of the next evolution of markets um, and their resource adequacy program. Um, and if you haven't listened, I'll just give a plug to the Jacob Mays or Frank Wolak interviews yet. I think they're I think they're outstanding. 
Um, I'm very proud of them. I think they're incredibly insightful people. And, you know, we got academics to talk like real people. So pat us on the back. Bam. Oh, there we did it. Um, anything, Dan, that you took from or takeaways from from this story or, or uh, well, I, I just want to jump in here um, and, and, you know, the only thing I didn't like about the Jacob Mays and Frank Wilneck uh, interviews is that you didn't invite me on because they were ah. fascinating and I, it's on, those two guys are on my list to call um, and make use of because, uh, yeah, just for anybody who hasn't listened to them, go check them out. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the 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 price cap associated with this and the thinking about energy only markets like we've seen it in Texas and Australia where they have these problems with resource additions and Professor Mays talked about this translation of, you know, investments decision into earlier timeframes that I think was spot on. Yeah. Um, what's going on here and specifically well, in australia is like they've got batteries they've got intermittent resources they've got coal resources anyways keep going i just love talking about this stuff as you can tell i know uh i'm curious what your first date with your wife was like uh we didn't talk about uh we didn't talk about that's power. probably why that was probably yeah, why that's good. uh you know so one thing i thought was interesting about this and i i haven't had time to dig into this deeper so i'm not exactly sure all the ramifications of it but yeah so we mentioned the high price cap for amo but part of the problem here was they triggered a safety net price cap at 300 per megawatt hour and i think that's australian dollars um so i don't know that's 200 yep, some dollars in us per megawatt hour which is less than the cost of generating power from gas and uh possibly even coal there so that took a lot of resources out of the market. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious, like how much of this was, yeah, just what, so so what think, are the lessons the takeaway, for, for us in terms of like artificially creating problems? Yeah, so I think one of the takeaways is your reliability externality as Professor Wolak, uh, I think first explored in 2001, I wanna say, but then was included in his most recent paper that we talked about, which is if even if you have this high, price cap that there weren't enough resources even at that price cap to enter the market and meet that power balance constraint so even at that high price it wasn't doing any good so then they had to go through these administrative procedures and they lowered price caps which then caused problems because then the generators didn't voluntarily which is why they had to shut down the whole market right but I mean, even which at that price high cap price, are you talking about the 10, so even the... at the fifteen thousand dollar price cap there were they didn't resources. even get to that I thought that's I mean, because there that... weren't enough resources, right? They, they didn't get to it, and then they ended up entering the administrative state, and then they lowered it, and then it the lowering. That's why they the lowering it, and then drove more resources, resources being, out drove of the it out, and they were like, "We this doesn't even work right now." Um, but it all comes down to, as I've interpreted, and they're gonna they they hopefully they'll never listen to this or any of my podcasts after talking to them because they'll be like, "Paul, you got this all freaking wrong." That's not what I said, but it comes down to, in my understanding. The translation of those, it's not an efficient translation of those high peak prices that you think you can get if you have a resource in the market into long-term investment decisions because of things like the uh, the reliability externality. Kurt, you've been you've been nodding your head, and I've just I am hear it. I want to jump in. Um, so I am <laughs> I'm excited about this. I mean, I think that I think they're there you you nailed it in a lot of different ways, both of you. But I think that one issue is it takes time to get new generation online, right? So 
you know, the idea is you want to send these price signals so that the new generation comes online, but at the same time, um, you could bankrupt a market. I mean, seriously, like during the 2000, 2001 energy crisis, not only did one of the nation's largest utilities go bankrupt in Pacific Gas and Electric, that was, I guess, the first time, but uh, I know, but um, the state of California was actually headed towards bankruptcy too, because they started guaranteeing purchases on behalf of the state utilities so that uh, the state wouldn't continue to have blackouts. So, um, you know, that, that kind of a price signal is in some ways isn't helpful. You really do need like a longer term price signal. It, you know, is you need uh, not just like these peak price signals that can make everyone go bankrupt, but you need kind of a longer term price signal but um, to encourage Wait, a longer term investment. So, so Kurt, basically what you're saying is that's not a price signal. That's a price signal. That is an awesome uh, Crocodile Dundee reference and very well done. Uh, Dan, I did not know that was in your repertoire. Neither did really I. Good. <laughs> um, I have I've lost sleep, like tossing and turning, thinking about these topics uh, as I've uh, after these interviews thinking, oh, I should have said this. I should have done that. I think it's a I think it's a fascinating topic to investigate more, especially for people in the Pacific Northwest. I look forward to talking to more people about these fascinating topics. We can, probably can got one more thing, like, though. You can keep this, going. Uh, Absolutely. Just, keep I'll going. Are you going to tie uh, it back to fish, though? I could maybe. No, please don't. No. Okay. Uh, so now what I was just going to say is the other challenge though, um, and this is important, is like these organizations do, um, the, the, the markets can really dissuade long-term investment as well, because, you know, if they create a really high cap and then people sell into it, and then all of a sudden they're forced to refund everything or they take these risks, what it creates is a sense of uncertainty for the investment, right? Because you're like looking at that and it's like, oh yeah, well, these guys made all this money, but then like people went to jail and, uh, or, you know, uh, money was refunded and uh, some of them lost money because the price kept dropped too low and, and things like that. So, you know, it, I think it's really important for these markets to be well, well thought out and stable and that you know the stable with the longer term you know price incentive i think that's what allows you know comfort in making more investments so i, I think yeah. it has to be a combination of those two things and as professor wolak mentioned on our recording the the long-term contract so an incentive to enter into long generators tend into long-term contracts with load because once they enter into lo these long-term fixed price contracts then their incentives align with load in uh, minimizing the cost to meet that contract cost, so I I, uh, I I really found his that 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 proposition around the value of long term contracts for resources um, because that gives them both the incentive like it gives them the certainty on revenue streams plus it aligns the gen generator companies incentives with loads to have a low cost way to meet that. Uh, you know, the, the challenge, the challenges though, and I'm no different than the rest of everybody. We, we want to have it all right. If the, if the daily price or the spot price is low, then we want to get out of our long-term contract because look, you know, I could be buying at this cheap price, but the long-term contract is three times that cheap price. But then when the spot market goes to $10,000, then I want my long-term contract. And so that's, you know, that's the rub is, um, you know, the, the energy markets tend to be very boom bust because it's a very capital intensive uh, industry. And so there are gonna be times when your long-term long contract 
is is losing you money and there's going to be times when it's saving you money um and you know those those things i guess you know it people like me want to have it all and that makes it really challenging to manage you know what's really advantageous in those circumstances a preference right to an advantaged resource <laughs> that's good i'll look Shh, into that don't tell anybody Freeport's LNG terminal in Quintana, Texas, has been shut down after an explosion at 11.40 a.m. local time on June 8, 2022. The LNG export terminal accounts for around 16% of U.S. liquefied natural gas export capacity. U.S. natural gas futures immediately reacted with prices falling from highs at Henry Hub of over $9 per MMBTU on June 8th to around $6.80 per MMBTU on June 22nd. Freeport is one of seven U.S. liquefied natural gas export terminals, which receive gas via pipeline and liquefy it before loading the super chilled fuel onto tankers. The terminals have helped the U.S. emerge over the past few years to vie with Qatar and Australia as the number one exporter of LNG. Freeport receives about 2 billion cubic feet of gas per day, or roughly 16% of total U.S. LNG export capacity. The operator said on June 14th that it does not expect the terminal to return to full service on the, until late 2022. Dan, what do you, you have any thoughts on this? Oh, I always got thoughts on everything. Um, I mean, it is just- Are they another... infotaining thoughts? Oh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'll do my best. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is just uh, another reminder of how integrated the and, and uh, exposed we are to the world energy market as much as our conversations are about within regions or even the West wide, uh, you know, we have to be humble and acknowledge and, and especially as we're planning, consider that we are, um, yeah, affected by stuff going on in Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, at our, at the conference last week uh, that was hosted by News Data and CJB Energy Economics uh, on wholesale power markets, um, Jeff Richter, formerly of PG&E, uh, or no, I'm sorry, formerly of Enron, um, he's at principal at Energy GPS. He really was uh, talking and focusing on about just how like volatility in the natural gas market is endemic. It's here to stay there's like structural stuff going on that paul you can explain better than i can um a lot of what he said was really i mean it's all of it was insightful a lot of it was over my head um but you know the uh the freeport explosion particularly or uh particularly drives home though like how old and brittle are uh, the delivery natural gas delivery infrastructure is around the West. I mean, we've seen this, uh, you know, with like Inbridge, um, what was it? El SoCal gas, uh, was it CityGate right down there? Um, issues with Diablo or no, that's something else. Sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just been like when Inbridge shut down, uh, the gas coming through Sumas basically dropped to zero and prices shot up, not surprisingly. Um, yeah. So, you know, nobody right now with decarbonization is excited to invest in natural gas infrastructure. But yep. at the same time, how do you get to a decarbonized future without using natural gas as a bridge fuel? There's a great uh, uh, 
paper and I'll include it in the show notes. I forget the authors, but uh, they did a, it was co-authors and I wish I could remember off the top of my head. We included it in the Jacob Mays show, show notes, but they talk about the transition and the need for an intentional transition uh, during, from our current system to the decarbonized future because of this concern about investment in natural gas infrastructure and making sure those services are available during this transition period. Like that's like, how often have we basically uh, transitioned away from an industry while still needing that industry as a as an essential service? Uh, Casey, is there any ang- fish angle on this or any angle you want to take on it? We want at least to loop you in. I think you guys covered it great. So thank you. <laughs> you know, that's the best. That's, that's, oh, I, want, I was going for the applause. And then I, went for the um, I think we're ready for the next one, Kurt. I think we covered that one pretty well. Okay, Paul, we're ready for the typewriter, and Dan's got the next story. On Thursday, June 17th, the U.S. Department of of the Interior transferred management of the Rorschach National Fish Hatchery to the Nez Perce Tribe. The tribe and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service previously co-managed the hatchery for 18 years. Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, signed the ceremonial transfer documents alongside Samuel Penny, chairman of the Nez Perce tribe, and Mike Connor, a member of the Taos Pueblo and assistant secretary for the Army Corps of Engineers Civil Civil Works Division. The transfer won't change how the hatchery is funded, and the facility will continue raising millions of Chinook, Coho, and Steelhead every year. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will continue its longstanding partnership with the Nez Perce tribe by continuing to provide support for the hatchery through the Idaho Fish and Wildlife Conservation Office and Pacific Region Fish Health Program. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Director Martha Williams was quoted in the Department of Interior's press release as saying, quote, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's wildlife management and conservation efforts are strengthened when we incorporate indigenous knowledge and rely on the best available science. I'm proud of the work the service has done to manage the fish production at this hatchery jointly with the tribe. And I look forward to its continued success as we work to ensure that the fish hatchery and surrounding community continue to thrive together. We found the story in Newsdata's June 22nd Meter Readings newsletter. It was published in Spokane's Spokesman Review by Colin Tiernan. Links to Colin's article in the Department of Interior press release will be included in the show notes. Casey, what can you fill in for us? My takeaway is kind of the bigger picture of how much more um, tribes in the Pacific Northwest and tribes across the country are becoming, um, you know, partners in all kinds of things. And, And they have been a partner in running this hatchery for a long time. And so, you know, it's not, it's, there's no big changes expected. There's no changes in funding, no changes in amount funding needed. Um, the the fish hatchery, the Dwarshek National Fish Hatchery, is one of the 26 um, salmon and steelhead hatcheries that are funded by BPA under the Lower Snake River Compensation Plan, <clears throat> and so um, I think that's kind of a um, an interesting aspect to it uh, is that BPA is going to continue to fund it, and um, um, I think the compensation program was set up basically because of losses expected from the Snake River dams, including Dwarshak, which is a blocking dam. They don't have fish passage there. Um, you know, but I guess just looking at the bigger picture, you see, you know, uh, 
tribal um, leaders um, now leading the Department of Interior, um, the National Park Service. Um, we have, a, you know, Jamie Pinkham, who was uh, executive director of um, Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, has a big job at um, U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. You know, so, you know, we have tribal members becoming part of the federal infrastructure, you know, program. And then there's also a bigger recognition in this idea of using um, indigenous knowledge. Um, so the, um, the intertribal, or I'm sorry, the, um, I think it was the Columbia Rivers, or I'm sorry, <clears throat> the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's um, independent scientists said that um, in one of their reviews that we should be using more indigenous knowledge. And that was a big change, I think, in 2020. So um, we're seeing it in all kinds of angles, and well, it's interesting. It, Casey, what, what do they mean by that? Because I, I, it, I mean, it kind of sounds like it could just be like a throwaway line, um, right? Like, but so what is there? Is it something substantive that they are really uh, trying to bring on, or are they just trying to window dressing to make it sound like they're taking tribes more seriously? And, and that's a really, really good question, and I, um, I haven't um, explored deeply enough. I don't. I haven't seen the council actually, the Northwest Power and Conservation Council. Um, make any changes in their review of their programs, but that was the that was the expectation of the scientific independent scientific review panel, and um, I wonder if it doesn't mean you know we don't necessarily have to do all this monitoring to know that I don't know I mean some things are common sense I guess and when you have tribes that have managed you know, fisheries, maybe they don't need to do all the monitoring mm. and evaluation that, that is required and expected to get BPA funding. Um, yeah. I'd be really curious to know what the tribes think it means. Well, I, I'll just uh, chime in real quickly and say, I think that that phrase actually initiated with the tribes. And, um, and I think that uh, they've definitely been strong advocates on their behalf. Um, that um, that let's say that we you know and I say we kind of like just kind of the general kind of fish operations and power operations communities might say well you know what is you know where is the scientific report or et cetera et cetera and if we don't have data then maybe you know we shouldn't follow a certain policy and I and I think that um, the tribes have been strong advocates that they have you know millennia of knowledge that's passed down and that that should um, that should count too. So I think that I think it's a really interesting question uh, because there is like this in our world so often we're like follow the science, follow the science. And I think that I'm not saying that the uh, that tribes are saying that we shouldn't follow science, but I am saying that uh, I have heard them talk about um, people having respect for, you know, the need for people to have respect for their uh, for their knowledge that's been passed down by generations. So I think that's what it means to them. 
Thank yeah, you for that very yeah. empathetic uh, synthesis of that position. That's some empathy showing through. Thank you. Oh, for, good. Okay. Oh, good. I, I feel empathy. So good. Along with the belt, the Anadromous Championship belt, yeah. we should get you an empathy badge. That's. Uh, I, I would love to have two belts. That would be. That would be excellent. Thank you. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to follow up on one thing, Casey. So you mentioned, I believe there are 26 fish hatcheries as part of the Lower Snake River Dam that Bonneville funds. Lower Lower Snake River Dam Conservation Agreement is what I thought I heard you say something. <laughs> compensation plan and they're meant to compensate you know for the fish that that won't come back because of the because of the dams yeah it's the mitigation is that mitigation. the right word for mitigation for part of uh the installation how many of those are co co-managed by tribes uh, is, is it is this the the one or is that is this a common framework at other fish hatcheries along the lower snake river dam that they're you know, co-managed co i don't know the answer to that and so i'm going to go look it up after we after we close here no i i imagine at least a few more i mean because you know you've got the umatillas you've got a number of tribes um in the upper snake river that would be um you know, want to co-manage with um, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who is basically running that show, the um, compensation plan. So um, I'm guessing that there's at least a few more, if not many more, but that's totally yeah. up to my guess. Very, very <laughs> curious to know more. I think it's a good practice and hopefully it's a trend where, um, you know, we can support through our rates, the good work for salmon recovery. That's what our all our goal is, right? To try to make sure we have healthy fish populations. So uh, Paul hit the typewriter and Paul, this is the last story, it's all yours. Quote, fish managers in the Columbia Basin are turning to the ancient art of falconry to help control some of the large colonies of birds that feed on young salmon and steelhead as they migrate to the Pacific Ocean each spring. Unquote. That's Casey's lead for our last story out of Newsdata's June 17th edition of Clearing Up. Last year and again this spring, falconers contracted with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to find out whether the birds of prey could scare off gulls at the Dallas Dam. And this spring, the Yakima Nation also hired falconers for several weeks and successfully delayed nesting at Miller Rocks above the Dallas Dam. The islands support large colonies of California gulls and ring-billed gulls, which commute to dams upstream and downstream to prey on juvenile salmonids. The falconers use a wide variety of birds of prey, including falcons, hawks, and owls. Alina Blankenship, a master falconer, what a title, that's a great title, uh, showed off her birds of prey at the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's June 14th meeting. Blaine Parker, who works for the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, told the council that avian predation continues to be a problem despite decades of effort to control the birds. Blaine continued, using, fal using falconry also doesn't cost millions of dollars to implement, and the gulls are mostly just scared away from the site since gulls don't exclusively eat fish. They may find a new food source when convinced to nest in a location when not, not to nest. We don't want them nesting when they're convinced not to nest at a location close to a dam. Aside from lower cost of implementation, falconers are federally licensed. The dam operators and tribes don't need a permit to take contract with them. Inclu we'll include Casey's story in the show notes. Kurt, any thoughts or follow-up on this one? Did you say the falconers are federally licensed? I did say that. Yes, yeah, so federally licensed falconers for federally licensed dams. It makes perfect sense. It does. 
I'm really, I think this is awesome. Like good news story. It's a new innovative way to do it. I'm excited about it. No, I mean, it is, it does sound amazing. Uh, and, um, and also uh, just as an aside, um, if you, we, I went out on a tour of um, Ice Harbor Dam and there are like a lot of pelicans out there now as well. So I'm wondering if we could do something with the falcons and that. I, I'm, I don't know what exactly happens if a falcon sees a, uh, a pelican. But anyway, I'd be interested to find out. We're just asking questions. Casey, do you have the answers? Um, pelicans are a lot bigger than gulls. I'd say that for sure. Um, and I don't know if, I know they were talking a little bit about um, cormorants and um, Caspian terns in the estuary, um, which are basically fish-eating birds. I mean, that's what they eat. Gulls, if you scare them off and they find a nice little dump somewhere, they'll be happy. Um, but these guys need fish to, you know, it's kind of like telling the orcas to get out of Puget Sound because we want the salmon. Um, they're not going to go anywhere <laughs> or they're going to go somewhere. If you got them, convinced them to go out of Puget Sound, they'll go somewhere else where there's fish. So that's the danger. And the falcons um, don't kill the birds, they just convince them to nest somewhere else. And so it, they're thinking it might work with gulls, might not work so much with, and I'm thinking pelicans are pretty much fish eating birds. So I don't know, but probably interestingly, Idaho had a story about pelicans this, this week too, Idaho Fish and Game. So I'm working on a little brief about that this week. Nice. Uh, Dan, Master Falconer sounds like a job that may be in demand soon. Are we going to have to change uh, careers and get a cool hey. title of Master Falconer? Why are you even asking? I, I mean, yes. We're do it, right? Yeah, 100%. I already ordered the Falcon glove. Um, you know, it's actually, I, I love this story. I like just, I every mean, part of it is just it. I love the fact when we all, after trying all these, like putting our fancy, solutions tech and all this stuff tech, we come back no we're like you solutions. know what you know what's worked for like hundreds and thousands of years let's get some falcons i love the fact that we're going back to just something that is just kind of simple and straightforward and um yeah Could this was, be an example of indigenous knowledge uh, yeah. that you were trying to pick on uh, earlier this uh, uh pick on excuse me i don't know investigate uh yeah, I just wanted to see if it was, like I said, a hollow throwaway patronizing term from feds or if there was some substance behind it. Okay. Um, investigate. Yeah, I, as Journalistically far as... investigate. <laughs> Explore. Uh, Pulitzer yeah. Prize winning uh, investigative journalism uh, investigation. Okay, you done? Um, not hanging an effigy, but the falconry is something I've yeah, seen some news stories about using uh, solar panels, like using falconry around solar panels as well to prevent the birds pooping on yeah. solar panels, which reduces their efficiency. I've, I've seen some stories. I, I didn't, I'm on vacation this week. I didn't go investigate to try to link to those stories as well. And I probably am not going to do it in the show notes, but, uh, if you want to send them our way, we can talk about them some other time, because I think it's not just useful for hydroelectric dams. It's maybe also be useful for things like solar power anyway it's a great story but we're all done with that and uh, so hit the typewriter and let's move on that's a long one we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we'll close out the episode with a quick rundown of the news stories we didn't get to in our 
TLDR segment, but we're calling Energy West Light. The Northwest Public Power Association believes in public power. For 82 years, NWPPA has supported public power utilities and other associates in the greater Northwest by offering education, training, communication, government relations, and services like RFP and job postings. In addition to public power, what else is important to NWPPA? Local control, member needs, integrity, and quality products and services. It's been a while since I've read this promo. It's a little little jaggedy, but I'm getting it through. Today, NWPPA proudly serves 155 member utilities and more than 325 utility industry associate members. Learn more or register for a class at nwppa.org. That's nwppa.org. NWPPA believes in public power. Next up, we're TLDRing our way through the news in a segment we call Energy West Light. I'm Paul Dockery. And I'm Kurt Miller. And we're, and we're lighting, lightening uh, up Energy, Energy West. West. Yes, no notes. Then you're first. Okay. BPA may, set, uh, may be set up for a significant boost in secondary revenue sales. This summer, given a late spring runoff, high natural gas prices, continued drought in the West, not including the Northwest, and a forecast calling for above normal temperatures. Steve Ernst covers the story with snippets from an interview with BPA's manager of weather and streamflow forecasting, Eric, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say Eric's last name, but I'm gonna go Pitlick or Pitiak? Pitlick. 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 Anyway, with Eric in, uh, in the June 24th edition of Clearing Up. Busy week for Steve because he also covered news from Portland, Portland General Electric. He reports this week that Portland General Electric says acquiring all the renewable energy it needs to meet Oregon's 2030 clean energy goals sooner rather than later may be more cost effective. The company intends to acquire 180 average megawatts as approved by regulators, but says locking in 400 average megawatts now would be cheaper in the long run. That's average megawatts, something Energy Twitter gave me a hard time about earlier this week. Really, what did what uh, what did Energy Twitter not like? Energy Twitter doesn't like average megawatts, and Jacob Mays maybe hadn't heard of average megawatts in normal context. It's a Pacific Northwest thing. We just got to get them on board. Got it. All right. Some of them may listen. Idaho power customers will see a 1.5 percent rate increase after Idaho regulators approved a request to speed up depreciation on its shares of the coal-fired Jim Bridger power plant in Wyoming. The utility had asked for a rate increase of more than 2%, but the Idaho Public Utility Commission said that would be too much given the economic conditions facing customers. For more, follow coverage by Dan Catchpole. Our own Dan Catchpole. I'm not sure if he'll be in frame right now or out. Out of California energy markets, the, C the California Public Utilities Commission took actions to maintain electric grid reliability at a local level, along with other measures aimed at resource adequacy. This follows administrative law judges issuing a draft decision that it is reasonable to modify the resource adequacy measurement hours to align with the California Independent System Operators revised availability assessment hours. Hmm. Um, the California Independent System Operator, which conducts a local capacity requirement study that serves as the basis for the RA program, estimated the capacity needed for all local areas to ensure long-term re reliability is 25,499 megawatts for 2023, 23,902 megawatts for 2024, and 24,221 megawatts for 2025. 
The grid operator also suggested system-wide flexible capacity requirements ranging from 23,448 megawatts in November to 17,971 megawatts in July. You can see they're very precise there. They're very precise. That's a very accurate forecast. It's very For accurate. more on the CPC decision, check out Linda Daly Paulson's story in the June 24th edition of California Energy Markets. You'll also find coverage by Rory Sweeney on a white paper issued by the CPUC proposing a policy roadmap for distributed energy resources and rate structures. California ISO recently closed out the comment period on its EDAM straw proposal. Among the filed comments, CAISA's independent department of market monitoring said the ISO should clarify in detail how the EDAM and EIM designs will determine in which balancing areas a real-time shortfall in the EDAM's energy schedules will end up. That's a long sentence. It is a long According, sentence. It is a long sentence. According to the market monitor, CAISO has verbally stated the EDAM balancing areas that pass the resource efficiency evaluation would share the consequences if the EDAM footprint faced a potential supply shortfall due to the realization of high net load uncertainty. They don't make it easy on you here, Paul. Those are, and that's like a nice summary of the comment. So uh, is, more details covered by Jason Fordney in California Energy Markets. Yes, and Jason really highlighted an important topic. I think this is a really important nuance. I'm glad the independent market monitor, uh, Department of Market Monitoring is, is at least asking for clarification. In personnel news, Matthew Shretnick has accepted a position at Northwest Requirements Utilities as its Director of Operations and General Counsel, another long title for Matthew Shretnick, a very tall man. Shretnick will be leading all legal responsibilities for NRU, including among other things, rate cases, BPA related litigation, upcoming residential exchange negotiations and post-2028 contract negotiations. He will also play a key leadership role in internal governance and long-term strategic planning for the organization. Yeah. I was just, I was really excited to see that news as well. Excited for Matt. It sounds like a fun new opportunity. And, um, and I know that he'll be a really great member of the NRU team. So welcome, Matt. Klotzka uh, 9 PUD made some news. I don't know if it's appropriate for me to read this instead of Paul, but well, it didn't uh, it feel appropriate for me to read it. It didn't feel appropriate for me to read it because it's okay, about Cloud Scanner PD. We're independent here. Like we're yeah. we're journalists here, right? Esri, an international supplier of geographic information software, system software, web GIS, and geodatabase management applications, published a case study on the work Cloudscan IPUD did using ArcGIS or ArcGIS to generate ArcGIS, yep. ArcGIS to generate their wildlife mitigation plan. Klatska 9 wildfire. Just to, this is an important clarification. It's wildfire. Oh, not I'm sorry. Let me. Mitigation. Let, can I start no, all over? Totally, no, I'd absolutely like not. We got to keep going. We're running out of time. My wife just texted me. Dinner's ready. Okay. <laughs> I'm on vacation. Okay. Wildfire mitigation plan. Klatskanai's GIS analyst uh, is Sefi Fox. Sefi. Sefi's great. Sefi may listen. Uh, okay. And I'll just say she's a great. She's great. Good job, Sefi. Good job, Sefi. Uh, Utilize detailed asset information, outage history population density, vegetation, height and type, road condition, and LIDAR elevation data to create a set of submodels and raster surface inputs using Model Builder and ArcGIS Spatial Analyst, which resulted in a map of discrete fire risk areas for the entire utility system. That's another really long cool sentence. stuff. 
I'm I'm a huge fan of ArcGIS and, and and geospatial analysis. And Sefi does some great work, and this this article highlights some of the great work she does. Okay, awesome. other brief mentions from the Energy News Roundup: Board members of the publicly owned Arizona utility Salt River project on June 23rd voted to pursue a legal appeal of the Arizona Corporation Commission's decision to deny an expansion of the Coolidge Generating Station, a natural gas peaking plant outside of Phoenix. The City of Menlo Park and Block Power are working together on a public-private partnership designed to provide the city with building electrification services. Zero Avia a Hollister-based zero-emission aviation firm will be working with Auto Aviation to develop a hydrogen electric powertrain to power Auto's Celera aircraft. BrightDrop, a General Motors technology startup focused on decarbonizing last-mile delivery, made a delivery of the first 150 electric delivery vehicles to FedEx in Southern California. And the last bit uh, from the news roundup, a microgrid for the San Pascual Band, Pascal Band of Mission Indians is now in service at the Tribal Government Center. The facility was commissioned and ribbon cutting ceremony was held June 9th by the tribe at the site in Valley Center. The microgrid includes 156.25 kilowatt solar park parking canopy and a 240 kW 480 kilowatt hour battery energy storage system and also integrated two smaller existing rooftop solar systems big fan of microgrids of public power underground that's all for tldr thanks to public power underground's production partners at news data for letting us use their leads and thanks to ian for compiling them for us this week if you like energy west light You'll probably like News Data's Energy West with similar themes. We actually stole their like drum intro for the Energy West light segment that you're hearing um, uh, from the Energy West podcast that Dan is a regular contributor to. So uh, it comes out weekly. It is way shorter than Public Power Underground. Um, and that's that's my promo for it. Now back to the podcast to close it out. That's, that's Energy, Energy West, West Light. light. Okay. Any anything we want to dig into deeper, Dan? What do you got? Uh, no, I actually um, just finished up. Just incidentally, uh, I was a little late getting on this because Jason and I were wrapping up our weekly Energy West or recording it. We weren't able to do it yesterday. Um, but yeah, Jason Fordney and I do it every week. Please check it out, Energy West. Uh, yeah, the. And if you want to learn more about the Salt River Partners proposal that uh, Abigail was on last week's, and they talked a lot yeah. about the SRPs and the ACCs and the plants and the expansion and the denials and all this stuff, uh, they got into it. Abigail was great on there last week. And then also just to plug it, uh, so we, we've got the weekly roundup of like, here are our top stories, but then we also every few weeks have an in-depth conversation with somebody, uh, you know, some really interesting kind of free range conversation with super smart people in the energy sector. No, I, no, I mean, I think that first of all, I have, I have to leave because I have, I have to go make a presentation. And secondly, I think uh, we covered a lot of good stuff today. I really enjoyed this. So uh, I'm sorry for not preparing. Once we get through this Murray Inslee process, I'm hoping my life will be more normal. And Dan, it was really nice to see you again. And thank you guys for having me on. Great to, great to have you, Kurt. See you guys. Bye-bye. Okay, so that's that's this week's episode. That was great. We covered a lot of stuff. The next episode will be the season finale, which we'll re be recording on July 18th, maybe, probably. 
damn, we got to work on that. We're going to be doing a mailbag for the season finale. The mailbag concept was one that Dan brought up. I thought it was great. It harkens back to the Susan Ackerman retirement show where we did a mailbag segment. I think it'll be a fun one. Um, so if you have any questions for Dan and I, send them to us. Send them by text, send them by email, find us on Twitter. I'm at a power manager or an average power manager because I think that's a funny little thing. Uh, Dan, what's your Twitter handle? At dcatchpole, so D-C-A-T-C-H-P-O-L-E. Yep, so send us any questions you got um, that you want us to include in a, in a mailbag, and we're going to figure out who the other guests are going to be. Maybe we can get uh, some more fun people to come answer mailbag questions, and it'll be fun. If, to make sure you don't miss it or bonus episodes in the meantime because let's be we honest there probably will be bonus episodes um you can sign away. up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com otherwise you can subscribe on youtube spotify apple podcast or your favorite podcast app you can also find merch on shopify by searching for public power underground hey casey dan you guys were great do you feel valued and appreciated was this fun oh yeah you feel valued and appreciate Casey? You like coming on here and talking about fish? I don't know anything about fish. I like my title co-star. I mean, I've never been a co-star before. This is awesome. And yes. you know, I thought it was like excellent when I worked for the Wenatchee World and I was I was only a freelance writer, but they called me world special writer. He was so enthused. Wait till I tell him I'm a co-star now. You're a co-star now. You've really elevated and a ambassador podcast ambassador. Uh, you're both now. So you yeah. can, I don't know if podcast ambassador, that you put that on a resume. Dan, do you feel valued and appreciated? Yeah. You don't have to be subscribed to news data's newsletters to get this podcast, but it sure makes the podcast make a lot more sense. That's a good, that's a good promo line. That's good writing. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Where the waters cut through Down her wild mountains and canyons she flew Canadian Northwest Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed are her own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD and News Data or the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is electric utility and electric utility adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team of Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll On Enthusiast, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Special thanks to our celebrity guest host, Kurt Miller, for agreeing to participate in this week's episode. Thanks for bringing the insights, putting on the trading hat when we needed it. That was wonderful. He's not here to hear the applause. It sounds like it's unlikely that he's ever going to listen to this podcast because he's so busy, but maybe you'll get here and hear the applause. It'll be really nice. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch. <laughs>